into your midst. Is this, can you hear, everyone hear me all right? Good. Thank you for welcoming me into your midst. Um, if you would take up the Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. It's always so lovely. We, we enjoy being with you very much, and we do pray for you. We do pray for you because we love you. In fact, why don't we pray and ask God to bless our time together? Just keep Luke 9 open, and we'll, we'll read it as we go, go along. But let's pray right now. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, bringing us together before another week to listen, to hear your voice through your word. I ask tonight, Lord, that you would once again speak to us, to your people. Speak to me, Lord. Speak to us. May we listen and may your words get down to our bones, our very hearts, for we know that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Bless this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last summer, I spent some time in, uh, back home in Great, Brit- Great Britain, and it was lovely to be over there. Really, really great. But I was noticing the differences between Americans and Brits. And, and one of the differences was the words and the language that we use, right? We may use the same word as the Brits, but each group might define it very differently. Take, for instance, the word torch. When I think of a torch, I think of a wooden stick with fire on the end that Indiana Jones would use when he's going through the Temple of Doom or, or something. When the British think of torch, they're thinking of a metal tube with batteries inside and a light bulb on the front, and when you flick it on, it shines a beam of light, flashlight, right? Or football. When Americans say football, we think of, um, of what we do on Thanksgiving Day. We think of, we think of pads and, and guys in helmets and, and running at each other as fast as possible, hitting each other and holding a ball so that Hopefully, they can get in the end zone and score a touchdown. But the Brits, uh, football to them, you hardly wear any padding, and you hardly ever use your hands, too. Instead, you pass the ball back and forth to one another, and hopefully, using your feet, and you hopefully score a goal. We call it soccer. That's right. That's right. It's interesting that we use these words, and though they may be the same, the definition is rather different. And in Luke chapter 9, tonight we're going to see that two people groups are, are having a disconnect because they're defining something differently. So we have Jesus, 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 and then the other group is his disciples. And they are defining their understanding. They're, they're looking at what greatness looks like. So I want to ask, what is true greatness? And true greatness, uh, we're going to use it examine it using two ideas. First, a sinner's definition of greatness is rooted in a love of self. Secondly, we'll see that the Savior's definition of greatness is rooted in love for others. Look with me now at chapter 9, verse 37 in the Gospel of Luke. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. 
It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus said, how long shall I stay here with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. That's what catches their eye. We see that in that passage. That's what catches their eye. They have just witnessed, and this is not the first time these disciples have witnessed, the greatness of God. But it's an act. Because because, uh, they just witnessed this casting out of a demon and this healing a a young boy. They begin to get this thought. Okay, all right. This is what greatness is greatness is, uh, 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 doing incredible acts, doing incredible things, because they have this sense that greatness is found in incredible acts one can do. They, they, they just tried to do what Jesus did, didn't they? They tried to cast this demon out, but the Father says, you, you couldn't do it. So he brings them to Jesus. And when Jesus does this act, notice, when Jesus does this act, they marvel they marvel at, at, at the act as if healing and exorcism is what makes someone great. They misunderstand that greatness is not in what Jesus does, but the greatness they witness is in who Jesus is. Holy because Jesus was God. Jesus was the word who become, became flesh and dwelt among us, as John says. It is that which they first witnessed. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's wonderful that the boy was healed. But, but, but they marveled at the act, not at the God who acts on the boy's behalf. Sinners will always define greatness in superlative acts. But sinners also think that greatness is found in having an unrivaled status above your peers. But the, uh, just a little background, at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus he, he looks at his disciples, he's, he, he's chosen the 12, and now he sends them out to heal and to preach and to go out into this, this region of Galilee. They go out, and, then, and then, they, then they come back, and when they come back, right, Jesus selects three of them, three of the 12, to go up on the, on the mountain with him. Peter, James, and John get to go see Jesus changed as he's transfigured into a more beautiful, wonderful state. They get to see Jesus in all his glory, in all his greatness. And then read with me at verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son, the Son of Man, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. And then an argument started out among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. An argument 
started out as the which would be the greatest. That, that word in Greek is where we get our, our, our prefix mega, like megatron or big or being foremost. So these disciples are arguing about who is the biggest, who is going to be the best, who's going to be the foremost. I mean, you can, you can almost hear the disciples, right? One of them says, well, Jesus, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, because Jesus sent me to go over here to this region of Galilee. Another one says, well, no, but I went over to this region and I preached uh, twice on Sunday, and, and you probably didn't, right? But then Peter, of course, Peter says, oh, uh, well, I, I'm the greatest because, you know, he didn't select you. He, I was one of the three that got to go up on the mountain with him. Then one replies, the only reason, Peter, the only reason you get to go up there is Jesus doesn't dare let you out of his sight, right? I mean, they're jockeying for place because of the reasoning of their heart. The disciples are thinking, I am the best. I am the greatest. I have followed him. I have been close to God. I was up on the mountain. Jesus chose me to to, to go to such and such a place, such and such a region. And it does sound a little bit like middle school boys arguing. But this isn't actually too far off from modern thinking. Many people, including Christians, seek highness recognition, seek meganess for themselves because the sinner's definition of greatness is rooted in a love of self. Now, we can, we can make an argument and we can say, well, that's just individualism. And it's true that there is rampant individualism right now. We can, we can easily see it in, in things like Facebook and Twitter and, 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 and sports where the promotion of the self is most important. But, it's, 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 but self-seeking greatness is, not an age, is, is an age-old problem. It's not new. And one word, one word we use for it is pride. And I think we need to understand a little bit more about this this pride. So I'm going to tell you, shed a little light on it by telling you the difference between cats and dogs. The difference between cats and dogs. When you reach down and you pet a dog, she wags her tail and looks up at you and is all comfortable and she says, ah, he must be God. When you go over and you reach down and pet a cat, his body curls around your leg and his tail flicks and he kind of smirks up at you and says, ha, I must be God. My family has owned some cats, or we've, been, or we've been owned by cats, but this seems to be true. Well, it's just an illustration, really. But the gospel says that God reached down and touched us. He became like us and saved us. He redeemed us. And at first, we came to him desperate beggars, we, and he said, What great mercy. You must be God. But there's this feline tendency that we have as we we continue in our Christian walk to say, ah, yes, I know this and that and so on about the Bible. Or I've done this for the church. I was even a deacon. Or or, or, I I helped my neighbors do this. or, or, Or I've given up this much money for Jesus. I must be important. I must be like that tendency to think that we are like God, to think we are as great as him, goes all the way back to that very first sin with Adam and Eve. It was a desire to be like God, wasn't it? To be noticed, to be the most important. Every, 
Every healthy human being has it, right? Youth desire to be important, to be popular, to be mega in school, to be noticed. But how about, how about, well, we saw it this last week, didn't we? Politicians, God bless them. They desire to be important. They desire to be influential. Our culture encourages even the self-promotion in the workplace. Be, be, be useful, stick out, be, be, compete against your colleagues, be the best. Why? Because, because, because a sinner's greatness is rooted in the love of self. And, and Ivan Rest, we have to understand that this is the human definition of greatness, but it is radically different from God's definition of greatness. And so that brings us to our second, second idea. Read with me uh, from verse 46 and, and following. So an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all is the greatest. Jesus is teaching about greatness using an object lesson, kind of using an illustration. So he picks up this, this uh, little kid and he, and he brings him close to him, this red-haired, freckled little Jewish, well, he probably wasn't red-haired, but this, this little boy and he sets him in their midst. And we love that. We love that image, don't we? Because Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, brown and Dutch and black and white, we are all precious in his sight. But that's not what's going on here. You see, in first century Palestine, children were generally considered useless. Useless, right? It wasn't until the Romantic period that we begin to think of children as precious and cute. In first century Palestine, um, children were just members of society. They were supposed to contribute, but they were too small, too weak, too needy, too immature, too whatever to actually be useful. So when Jesus picks up this boy and places them, picks up this child and places him in the midst of his disciples. He's actually pointing to a low-class citizen. You see, the Savior is defining greatness with, with, with a humble stature. By taking that low-class citizen, that useless child, Jesus says, welcome this child, and you are welcoming me. And if you welcome me, you are welcoming my Father. By saying that, he cuts down the pride and the arrogance that, the, that was so deep in the, in, in the disciples. He's saying, he's saying if, if actually, you want greatness? You want people to be, you want to be important? You want to be worth people's, you want to gain people's attention? You want glory for yourself? Fine then. Welcome someone who is lowly. And the disciples, by doing so, would have to humble themselves, wouldn't they? Which is, what Jesus was after, what, what Jesus was after, after all. For what does he say at the end of ver verse 48? See it? He, he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. 
And we, we, isn't that wonderful how even this morning, Pastor Tony talked about this holy paradox. You remember? How we, um, we win it all by losing it all, didn't he? He talked about that. And this is a, a, a holy paradox too. Christ defines greatness in humility, strength in weakness, right? But I'll direct your attention, especially to verse 44. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And there, there, right in the middle of our passage, right, is the crux of Jesus' argument. The crux, and it's it's the crux, it's, it's the cross. That's what Jesus is showing. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men because greatness, the Savior defines greatness by self sacrifice. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't even understand after the Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men. But the Gospel writer Luke makes absolutely sure that we all know. Look at verse 49. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. And then watch this. As the time approached, this is verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Luke is calling our attention to the fact that Jesus has just taught them about greatness. He has told them what truly great people would do, and now Jesus is going to go and demonstrate what true greatness is. I mean, Jesus, Jesus, God sent his son into the world for us, and Jesus healed and raised people from the dead and exercised demons and showed great concern for others because, as I say, the Savior's definition of greatness is rooted in a love for others. We'll be celebrating it. And celebrating it is might, might be the wrong word. But Pastor Tony said, we have to go to the depths. Remember on that, on that Good Friday service, Monday, Thursday, because Jesus was ridiculed in Jerusalem He was beaten and flogged and then hung up on a tree like a criminal, the the lowest of the low. And by doing that, he became the greatest of the great. He demonstrated great love for us in this, that while while the disciples and and, and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and, and you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the Son of God, Coming to this earth is the ultimate association with the lowly. Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate putting of others first. It's the ultimate act of greatness. Jesus willingly going to the cross for us. That's what makes him truly great. Because of his humble stature, as he sacrificed himself, he shows what greatness looks like. And Ivan Rest, you, you have to understand that I, I, I apologize. Actually, I don't apologize. 
I take that back. Because I, I say this every time I come here. I talk, about, I talk about Jesus Christ, and I talk about what he's done on the cross. And I say that because if, if just possibly one time someone walks in through that door and they have never heard of him, at least they will hear the gospel. They will hear it every time I preach, that Jesus Christ loves you enough to die for you, to die that you will have eternal life. I mean, what a great Savior is Amen? So Christians, in closing, how can we mimic Christ's greatness? What do we do in response to God's love for us? We're not earning it. We are definitely not earning it. Nothing we could do could merit the righteousness that Christ earned on the cross for us. But how do we respond to it and grace and gratitude and for, for, how do we respond in gratitude and grace to grow. Well, first let me say this. First let me say this. This hard word. The church does not exist for your sole benefit. The church does not exist for your sole benefit. You are members of this church and called just as much to serve this church as this church is to encourage and serve you. But I'll speak particularly. Preachers, what is your motive for preaching? What is my motive for preaching? Is it so that people can see um, how I'm growing in preaching, how uh, I'm good at putting sermons together, are my hand gestures good, can I memorize the sermon, or is it so that God will be glorified? What is John 3.30? He must increase and I must decrease. But elders... I'll talk to elders of the congregation. How is your teaching and prayer and admonishment, how does it show great concern for others? Or are you just happy to exercise authority in the church? Deacons. Deacons. Is your service done extravagantly, inside and outside of the church, so that all people might see? Or or, or is it done so that others may be raised up? Those with silver hair, I'll say. In Deuteronomy, it it really calls us, Deuteronomy 6, it calls us to teach the commandments to the children, our children. And it's not just talking about our biological children. I mean, it's talking about all of the children in, in God's body. So how might you interact with high schoolers and middle schoolers on a Sunday morning so that they know the love of God. I mean, how might you show them that, model that? And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it, is it possible to volunteer with the youth group for special events and things like that? Just, just a thought. But youth, youth, I'll talk to you guys because I love you. You dear youth with your strength and energy, what can we do? No, never mind. What can you do to serve the church? You've been given such great gifts. How are you using them to show others the love of Christ, to serve them and show that Christ is truly great? And families, speak to families. What if families spent time together shoveling someone's driveway in service? 
What if instead of going to soccer on Saturday morning, and soccer is really good on Saturday mornings. I love soccer. But what if instead of going to that, we spent some time coming over to the church and cleaning it so that it's ready to go for the next day's services? Right? We can serve as families too. And lastly, those who might be seeking, those who might not yet know Christ. I, I want to encourage you to think through whether life is really, really about striving after greatness. Is it really about elevating yourself above others, putting others down, spending every breath proclaiming your extraordinariness? Do you, do we, do you think that the happiest people on earth are also at the highest? I invite you to think. I invite us all to think, investigate just a little further what the truly great Jesus Christ has done for you, dear friend. What he's done for you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we praise you and we worship you. Great Jesus Christ, we praise you and we worship you and we come before you offering our lives and our hearts. May we not seek our own greatness, but may we seek to love and serve each other and others. And in doing so, may we show them the wonderful face of Jesus, the wonderful love of God. And in doing all that, may we make much of Christ, the truly great Savior. Bless, bless this, this Sunday and bless our week.